Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. A year after a violent, racially charged incident in New Hampshire, we'll hear from two young men about what it's like growing up black in a town that's mostly white. It's very difficult to learn when you're more worried about your skin color and, like, who's going to say what to you in the next class versus, like, your schoolwork. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll also sit in on a play that explores race and hopes to make its audiences uncomfortable. Because that cringiness and that like un- discomfort is what black people experience 90% of the day. So I wanted to give 90 minutes of that. And we'll check in on politics in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Plus, the endangered North Atlantic right whale population is declining. We'll look at why and we'll hear an orchestra inspired by these majestic animals. More important is the aura they create, which is of an animal that's rife with mystery. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. It's been a year since a young biracial boy was seriously injured in a near hanging incident in Claremont, New Hampshire. It had a strong impact on some residents of the town, including the superintendent of schools at the time, Middleton McGoodwin. Here he is with NHPR reporter Brita Green talking about his reaction to the act of violence. I didn't know. I was I was confused. I was confused. Children can be mean to other children. Sometimes just joking can lead into injury. Uh, But I initially started thinking about, well, you know, just bullying. It was just being mean to someone else. And um, a lot of people had that response. It's just bullying. Um, Were you surprised then by all the media coverage? I was surprised. um, But what I did realize, how little I did know. As we reported a few weeks ago, the state has been struggling with questions of race and racism since that incident. And New Hampshire Public Radio has been talking with residents about it. Reporter Daniela Alley takes us to the town of Conway, where two friends have been grappling with the realities of growing up black in a majority white town. And a warning for our audience, this story includes a racial slur. In the middle of North Conway, there's Schuler Park. It's a big field right along the main strip of shops and restaurants. The scenic railway has a stop here. And families throw baseballs and couples sit and chat on benches. Will Krug and Nick Sanderson have lots of memories of playing flag football on this field growing up. Will had the ball and he was like running full speed and I was running full speed. And we just like full on collide and just yeah. smacked each other. We each went back like five feet. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty Probably funny. Over. Yeah. Nick, who you just heard, and Will are high school seniors. They've been best friends for pretty much their whole lives. Oh, he's always there for me, I guess, you know? Probably is like a brother. My brother, like straight up my brother. But Will and Nick have also had to deal with the fact that they live in a town and area that's 94% white. They're both black, both adopted by white parents. And the incidents of racial bias began early. Will can remember someone calling him a racial slur when he was just five. 
but they called me a nigger, and I was in kindergarten, and they were in first grade, and there was, like, a fence in between the kindergartners and first graders, and they, like, came down and said it to me. I didn't know what it meant. Once Will got to high school, moments like that started happening more often. Kids would definitely, like, lose something and then come up to me and tell me I stole it because I was black. And when this would happen, Will and Nick would turn to each other for support. Just talking about what happened, how to deal with it, calming each other down, I guess. Mostly, yeah, just calming each other down. Just get over it, you know? What, what would life be like if you didn't have the other person pretty to rough. talk about Very that? difficult. Yeah it'd, be, yeah, it'd be pretty rough. Probably, yeah. I probably wouldn't be where I am yeah, right now. I think I'd be in a much worse position. Yeah. Their school, Kennett High School in Conway, gets students from eight surrounding towns. And socioeconomically, the school is diverse. But when it comes to race, not so much. Last year, of a student body of about 800, just 12 students identified as Black. Will and Nick say a couple of years ago, there was an incident that was pretty challenging for them. A handful of students started flying the Confederate flag on the backs of their trucks. Some wore shirts with the flag on it. One student who is white and now graduated posted a video on Twitter of a truck with the flag, sitting in traffic, revving its engine. The caption read, quote, racist and proud. At the time, Will was a sophomore and Nick a freshman. School officials banned students from displaying the flag on their trucks or on their clothes. But some students kept wearing it, just hidden under a flannel. They'd approach Will, Nick, and other students, unbutton their flannel, and ask. Do you like my shirt? It's just a Confederate flag, and it's just like, why are you asking me, like, specifically? And then they'll be like, oh. Like, they don't really answer it. They just kind of, like, try to brush it off and play it off as they'd ask anybody else. But it's like, I know you wouldn't. Like, I had kids put, like, Confederate flags in my backpack. A group of students, including Will and Nick, wanted the school to address the issue head-on. They wanted the school to host a forum to talk about the flag's history and why some people would see the flag as offensive. But if I was to put 500 kids into an auditorium and have a school-wide discussion, my concern was that the discussion would um, turn into a shouting match, and we certainly didn't want that. This is Principal Neil Moylan. That forum, it didn't happen. But he says he did talk with students individually and in small groups, and that teachers could have discussions in class. He says the issue was resolved once the flag was banned. I told him I had heard differently, that the school's underlying issues were still there. So I asked him what role he thinks schools play when it comes to addressing bias. Our role is to address it, and our role is to address it um, each and every time we see it, um, and not to ignore it, and we don't intend to ignore it. Um, And I do think it's addressed every single time, contrary to what... Um, you may believe or have heard. For Will, the school's response wasn't enough. He saw the whole Confederate flag episode as just the latest example of a hostile environment at Kennett that was beginning to wear him down. There was barely any peer support in the school. Will had few teachers or administrators to confide in. And these incidents, they've followed him since his kindergarten days. It's very difficult to learn when you're more worried about your skin color and, like, who's going to say what to you in the next class versus, like, your schoolwork. Will had disciplinary issues, in-school suspensions, out-of-school suspensions, detentions. And it got to a point where his parents, Teresa Beckett and Matt Krug, who are white, were starting to wonder if their son was being treated differently because of his race. 
That was the really hard part was, was figuring out, is he being discriminated against? Is he just a difficult person in class? You know, is he a difficult student? I wasn't sure. They asked the high school for a racial breakdown of the school's total suspensions, but the school doesn't keep track of that. Nationally, studies have found that black boys are three times more likely to be suspended than white boys. And ultimately, Will's parents decided that the school was a big part of the problem. They feared what their daughter, who's also black, would experience at Kennett High School. They had heard good things about Freiburg Academy, a private school that's free to town residents. It's just a 20-minute drive across the state border in Maine. So they moved to Freiburg. And when this past school year wrapped up, they sent a letter to their former school board in Conway about what they saw as a, quote, prevalent discriminatory culture. Here's Will's father, Matt Krug. There are other people who are going to come up through the school that I hope they don't have to reach this you know, don't have to go through the same thing. In recent months, SAU 9, which Kennett High School is a part of, has started an anti-bias response team. But Will's skeptical about this group. That's why this is funny. Like, that's such a joke. That's just, like, to say that they did something. That's not going to change a thing. <laughs> what, what do you think it would take to make an actual change? Um, to have some school administration who are African-American and make the school more diverse just like the teachers and everything it's just like i feel like it just needs to be more diverse so kids know like what's okay and what's not like if you're not exposed to it then you're not gonna know what to do when you see a black kid and like that's basically what we're dealing with will and nick do have some hope that things will change but they know that there are still challenges ahead and at the very least they say they have each other to rely on to go out and ski longboard, or play some football to clear their heads for a bit. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Daniela Ali. The uncomfortable topic of race is the subject of a new play called Well-Intentioned White People by playwright Rachel Lynette. The play is finishing its premiere run at Barrington Stage in Pittsfield, Massachusetts this week, and it's designed to make its mostly white audiences cringe. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has our story. Actions speak louder than words, it's said, and when they only appear to be good actions, they can also cause a mess of problems. The action on stage in well-intentioned white people begins in an apartment shared by Cass, a black college professor in her mid-30s, and Viv, who's a white activist, same age. The two have recently split up but still live together. Oh, my God! Hi, Viv! Cass, oh, my God! Have you seen your car? Yes, I have. How long has it said that? I guess since after lunch. It wasn't like that when I took a lunch break. How are you not freaking out? It's a word. The worst word. It's not the worst word. I'll deal with it. Aren't you worried? It's the N-word. And playwright Rachel Lynette, who's black, says she can feel the audience cringe whenever it's said, and characters say it often. Because that cringiness and that like un- discomfort is what black people experience 90% of the day. So I wanted to give 90 minutes of that. The N-word is often cushioned with very funny dialogue. Lynette purposely wrote it this way. She's watching the audience for reactions. An audience, she says, that's mostly white and exactly who she wrote the play for. Most theater audiences are white liberal people who are older who are used to seeing plays that are set in the 50s 
in the 1800s where it's about slavery and it's about segregation and there's that distance and they can distance themselves and pat themselves on the back and go, we're so much better now. We're post-racial. Well-intentioned white people takes place in what Lynette describes as a hip and liberal town in a red state, maybe Austin, Texas, or where Lynette teaches theater and writing in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Are you okay to go to work tomorrow? Back on stage early in the play, Viv is still frantic about the hate crime. And she convinces Cass to call the police and pushes her to talk about her feelings. I'm a little annoyed. Probably have to get a new paint job and that sucks. And I thought the whole reason we were calling the police was to let them handle it. Why be afraid when a cop is on your side? Now you're just being mean. No, I'm just trying to end this conversation. Okay, okay, I get not wanting to... What's our action plan? (laughs) Our action plan? Yes. Viv's well-intentioned action plan went from a call to the police to a call to a newspaper without telling Cass. An article gets the attention of the college administration where Cass teaches. If there's anything you need... And Dean West, who is white in her mid-50s and is on Cass's 10-year review committee, goes to Cass's office and says the best way for her to process this hate crime is to have her lead an Equality Day. It will be good for students and good for Cass. President of the university... Dean West begins by saying she understands this is all a little absurd. Unfortunately, this event is desperately needed. I thank God every day I went to Howard University for a semester. (laughs) White people just don't get it. I really have my eyes opened. I understand the struggle, how traumatizing this must be for you. I would be beside myself if I came to my car and the word was on it. An audible gasp came from someone in the audience. I've had many a white people say the N-word around me, not at me, you know, or like not calling me it, but just saying it. And it was just like, did that just, yep, that just happened. Okay. Very much like the character of Cass, who about the N-word keyed onto her car door, remains until a certain point late in the second half of the show unfathomably calm. Lynette gives Cass language that shows her faults, a transphobic insult she lobs at her best friend, another professor. And Lynette says Dean West is not a caricature, as some audience members say. She's just as trapped as Cass herself. I think people who are not in the academic world gravitate towards different things in the story rather than like the politics of academia. But you can't tell this story without the politics of academia or the politics of young people. I'm from the South. Like, the real South. (laughs) Mara is a student, a big activist on campus, and to let you know that, she wears a t-shirt with the word woke on it. And we have such a history of dealing with this. I think it makes us more, I don't know, emotionally available and honest when it comes to how we treat She's white, and we learned Catholic, and she recently wore a hijab to class as an act of solidarity with Muslim students, though she never asked anyone who's Muslim if that would be okay. Even as Lynette's script appears to scoff at white people and at the most ridiculous, over-the-top things some have done in the name of fixing a problem, she says her aim is actually to get people to shut up and listen, to ask, white or black, what do you need? I'm not speaking for all black people. I am not speaking for all black people in academia. I'm just speaking for what I saw while I was there for a short amount of time in the liberal cities that I've been in and the reactions to things as things, these tragic things happen. We all want to do something. We all feel called to do something. And maybe, Lynette says, when Viv types leave the show, 
Next time, before they take action for someone whose car door may have been keyed with a racist slur, they'll ask, what do you need, instead of making an action plan. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Coming up, the Massachusetts primary provided another shocking outcome in a strange year in politics. We'll take a look next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. In a year when political conventional wisdom keeps getting upturned, Massachusetts provided one of the most shocking results so far this past week. Ayanna Presley, the first woman of color elected to the Boston City Council, easily beat Representative Michael Capuano in the state Democratic primary. Polls had never shown her winning the contest, let alone beating a popular 10-term incumbent by 18 points. With no Republican opponent, Presley is set to become the first black woman to represent Massachusetts in Congress. Here's WBUR's Anthony Brooks. Well, it seems like change is on the way. This was a dramatic and historic victory for Ayanna Presley, the first black woman elected to the Boston City Council who campaigned for Congress on the slogan, Change Can't Wait. Presley cast herself as a movement-building candidate. The daughter of a single mother and a father who was in and out of prison, she said she could better represent the state's only majority-minority district, which includes most of Boston and several of its surrounding communities. We committed to running a campaign for those who don't see themselves reflected in politics or government and are forever told that their issues, their concerns, their priorities can wait. Presley says those issues include gun violence, racism, domestic abuse, and the wide economic disparity in the 7th District. She's part of a record surge of women and candidates of color, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York and Andrew Gillum in Florida, who are challenging established Democrats across the country. On the issues, there was little light between her and the man she beat. Michael Capuano was a reliable progressive vote in Congress who campaigned on his long experience and his opposition to President Trump. But in his brief concession speech, he acknowledged that voters had turned their backs on the Democratic establishment that backed him. Clearly, the district wanted a lot of change. And apparently, the, uh, the district just is very upset with lots of things that are going on. I don't blame them. Uh, I'm just as upset as they are. Then Capuano tipped his hat to the woman who ended his 20-year career in Congress. America is going to be okay. Ayanna Presley is going to be a good congresswoman. And I will tell you that Massachusetts will be well served. With that, Capuano thanked his disappointed supporters and invited them all for a drink in the Caribbean, where he's apparently heading next. Capuano's defeat means Massachusetts loses a senior member of the House who would have had substantial clout should Democrats win in November. But Ayanna Presley's victory was as decisive as it was surprising. She shunned corporate PAC money and ran a grassroots campaign that targeted younger voters and voters of color and beat Capuano by 18 points, dominating him in the city of Boston, her stronghold. She pledged to bring her campaign for change 
to Washington. Both my fellow Democrats, who I hope will stand with us, and the Republicans who stand in our way, and to everyone in the 7th Congressional District that change isn't waiting any longer. We have arrived, change is coming, and the future belongs to all of us. With no Republican opponent, Presley's victory means she will become the state's first African-American woman to serve in Congress. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anthony Brooks. Anthony's colleague at WBUR, Steve Brown, has been following some of the other political developments from primary night and also from the State House in Boston. Steve, welcome to Next. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, you were following very closely the, the race for governor. Of course, Charlie Baker, one of the most popular governors in America, a Republican, won his party's nomination. Who's he going up against in November? Well, he'd be going up against Jay Gonzalez. This guy, ironically, it's, it's kind of a, f- a funny thing. Uh, Charlie Baker at one time was the Secretary of Administration and Finance uh, here in Massachusetts under Bill Weld. Uh, Jay Gonzalez was the Secretary of Administration and Finance under Deval Patrick. After, uh, after Charlie Baker held that job, he went on to uh, run an insurance company. Uh, Jay Gonzalez, he also went on to run an insurance company. And as a matter of fact, Charlie Baker uh, grew up in the town of Needham, and you'll never guess where Jay Gonzalez lives right now. <laughs> Are there any chances of Charlie Baker actually losing to Jay Gonzalez coming up in November? I think there's a remote chance. Yeah. Uh, You know, the the power of the incumbency is not what it used to be. Baker has a ton of money. He and his running mate, Karen Polito, have a combined ten and a quarter million dollars in the bank. Now, Gonzalez only has $360,000. Keep in mind, though, that uh, some of the recent upsets that we've been seeing both here in Massachusetts and nationally, the upstart challenger has less money than the entrenched incumbent. Now, I was at uh, Gonzalez's headquarters on primary night, and there is hope over there that this overall dissatisfaction with the status quo will spill over into this race as well. So you follow the Massachusetts legislature. I want to get to some of the big things that have been happening there at the state capitol. Uh, when the legislative session finally wrapped up at the end of July, one of the bills that, that did pass was a clean energy bill. Tell us a little bit about what exactly is in that bill, because it's big news for the rest of New England, too. Yeah, this authorizes additional procurement of offshore wind power. It increases the renewable portfolio standard that governs the amount of clean energy that utilities must buy. It establishes an energy storage target that requires uh, gas companies to collect and report data on leaks. Uh, There was a feeling that after this bill passed on the final day of the session back at the end of July, that this fell short of some of the more sweeping changes that environmental advocates had hoped for. Uh, One environmental group uh, actually called it a base hit and not a home run. Now, they tend to do energy bills in incremental steps here on Beacon Hill. They had one uh, last session. They had one the previous session. And uh, the Senate chair uh, promises that there will be another one uh, this coming session as well. But what about a big education funding bill for for K through 12? What happened there? Well, uh, there's differences of opinion between the House and the Senate over how to revamp the education funding formula in Massachusetts. The state Senate wanted to increase education funding by a billion dollars a year. Uh, The House was proposing increasing funding over five years, and they also called for more study on the areas of education that have had dramatic cost increases. Uh, The House and the Senate were just too far apart, and, and then the session came to an end before a compromise could be reached. So what was the general mood like on on Beacon Hill this time around? What was the session like? 
know, I, I sense that there was some disappointment that more could not have been accomplished. Uh, a more sweeping energy bill, an education funding bill. Uh, still, uh, there was some pride in some of the things that they uh, they did get accomplished here. They uh, passed an overhaul of the state's criminal justice system. That had been in the works for a while. There were also bills to protect uh, reproductive rights, paid family leave, and automatic voter registration. Uh, also, uh, also keep in mind through this session, a, a cloud hung over the legislature with the scandal involving uh, former Senate President Stan Rosenberg, the husband of former Senate President Stan Rosenberg. Uh, the uncertainty over that period, which really ran from uh, December of last year until May of this year, definitely put a chill on the efficient handling of key pieces of legislation. Steve Brown is WBUR's State House reporter. He joined us today from the Massachusetts State House. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, John. Let's take our political conversation a bit south now. We'll turn to Ian Donis of Rhode Island Public Radio for an update on Ocean State politics. Ian, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, John. Well, let's start by talking about the big news out of Rhode Island this legislative session and out of this political year. The Red Sox AAA team, the Paw Sox, have announced their move to Worcester, Massachusetts. This has been a big deal for a lot of different reasons. First of all, how exactly did Rhode Island lose its signature team? Well, the short answer, John, is that Worcester had a much more unified, better coordinated approach, and it's a much better financial offer for the Paw Sox ownership. Of course, this has been a real saga in Rhode Island for a number of years. It's gotten into the re-election campaign of the House Speaker in Rhode Island, who has been concerned about the public perception of public borrowing going to a baseball team owned by some very wealthy people. There have been various iterations of the proposal to try and keep the Palm Sox in Rhode Island over a number of years. And there's been a lack of unity among political officials in Rhode Island who have been sensitive to the politics of the issue. And, you know, we remember the experience in Rhode Island of 38 Studios. That was the video video game company started by former Red Sox pitcher Kurt Schilling that was a Attracted by a state-backed loan in 2010 and went bankrupt in 2012, leaving Rodan taxpayers on the hook for many millions of dollars and kind of souring the public on the use in many cases of public dollars, even public borrowing for various projects. And that kind of uh, poisoned the well, if you will, of the body politic in Rodan. And, you know, you can talk to other people who say, that this was a lack of political leadership. I guess I'll just quickly ask Ian about the the specter of 38 Studios that you mentioned. It's amazing to me that this many years later that this failed deal with Kurt Schilling, a former star of the Red Sox who helped to bring them a World Series title, that this is still what's hanging over the State House in Rhode Island, that people are worried about spending public money because that one's so disastrously wrong. Yeah, you're right, John. It really is. And many people feel like that boil was never really lanced because there was never an independent outside investigation of how this deal came together and what went wrong. There was a criminal probe that failed to produce any charges. As they say, you know, stupidity is not against the law. And (laughs) to to some people, it looked like uh, elected officials in Rhode Island were so desperate for economic development during 
the depths of the Great Recession that they took a flyer on what some people even then saw as a very stupid deal. We had a conversation on recently about how tightly grouped together states in the Northeast, especially New England, have a little bit different political environment than the larger states out West where you're governing something that's almost the size of a full country. I'm wondering how Rhode Island's compact size changes and shapes politics in your mind. That's a great question, and your sense is absolutely right, John. Politics is very intimate in Rhode Island. Uh, People here expect to see their elected officials, expect to see them at parades and feasts and at the supermarket and stuff like that, and there is a lot of close contact in that respect, and you're right. I mean, Rhode Island is basically one large neighborhood. You can't go out for a bite or a drink most of the time without running into someone you know, And, you know, people might say that historically influences the kind of corruption that we've seen in Rhode Island, but it also leads people to care about their neighbors. It cuts both ways. And as you say, it does give an immediacy to the kinds of issues here. You know, there's kind of a joke in Rhode Island, you know, Newport, it might be like a 35 or 40 minute drive from Providence. And people say you have to pack a lunch to go there because it's such a long drive, not not going through a big, vast state like Connecticut. And uh, but, yeah, that that certainly influences how people look at issues and, and the kind of expectations they have for their elected officials as well. Ian Donis knows just about everyone in political life in Rhode Island. <laughs> He's a political reporter for Rhode Island Public Radio. Ian, as always, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it, John. Thank you. Coming up, the decline of the endangered North Atlantic right whale. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. The Mendocino Complex in California became the largest fire ever recorded in that state's history in August when it reached over 300,000 acres. While we usually don't see fires that size here in New England, that doesn't mean that New Englanders aren't involved in the West. In fact, a number of New England crews were sent there to help with fire suppression efforts, including an engine and two firefighters from New Hampshire. David Culgren is a forest fire patrolman for the state of New Hampshire who recently served as engine boss on the Mendocino Complex fire in California. David, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Why did you travel from New Hampshire all the way out to California to work on the the Mendocino fire? Well, you know, uh, we're part of a a national resource. California had put out the request for help, so we sent resources out there. So this is something that people from the Northeast, where we don't have as many large-scale fires like this, go out west and, and help people who increasingly are fighting fires seemingly summer after summer. Just how different is it in California than it is in the woods of New Hampshire? Well, you know, and that's a that's a great question because, you know, people from the east, if they've never been out west and experienced that and stuff, they can't really get a good perspective. Um, you know, back east, it's we, we do have droughts. It does get dry around here, and, and, you know, clearly we get some small fires and stuff. But, you know, out west with those horrible droughts they've been having, you know, even on a non-drought year, everything's very brown. You know, the grasses are brown, the, you know, it's very dry, and so, yeah. We've been hearing about all these fires over the course of the last few summers in California and in other western states. Have you been out west to fight fires before? Yeah, so this assignment, I think, was my 18th out-of-state assignment. 
on fires. 18th, and many of them in, in western states? Yeah, you know, for the most part, clearly uh, we do send fire crews down south. I've been to Tennessee and Florida and, and stuff like that. But yeah, most of my trips have been, been out west. And are you noticing the same thing that maybe us lay people are noticing, that there just seem to be more of these fires happening? Yeah, you know, fires are always there, you know what I mean? Especially out west when, when they have the dry conditions and stuff. With the droughts, with the bug-killed timber and stuff, you know, they have a lot of lightning storms that move through. These fires get started, and with their topography and stuff, the fires just grow very quickly. It's interesting you mentioned bug-killed timber because here in the east we're having uh, an incursion of all sorts of invasive species that are attacking different trees. Uh, that plus the fact that we're having more droughts in the east. Are, are you and your colleagues preparing for more events like what we see in California happening here in New England in the coming years? Right. You know, as, as far as the size of the fires go, the last two seasons— Fire seasons for us have been relatively slow, which is good. Prior to that, you know, we were getting some decent-sized fire growth in, you know, New Hampshire and stuff. wasn't really anything to do with the bug-killed timber yet. You know, we still got a lot of green and lush trees out there and stuff. But, but you also have a lot more people packed in. Even in the more remote areas of states like New Hampshire, there's still a lot more populated than places like Wyoming or Colorado or, oh, or, or California. Is it, is it a lot different thinking about fire in a place that has so many more people in it? Oh, absolutely. You know, fires get picked up so quickly, like in the Northeast and stuff. You know, in New Hampshire, we're still operating fire towers. Uh, we're flying aircraft on high fire danger days. We have mobile patrols out there looking for the fires when we're in an elevated uh, fire danger. When you're out in California and you're fighting a fire that's that's been so difficult for the people in that area, and, and they see that you're from New Hampshire, do they come up and talk to you, and what do they say? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, my partner had never been out west, um, and he'd never been on a, on a large fire like that. And he was so amazed how appreciative the people are. Now, I've been out several times, and, and you know, the school kids will make posters and hang them up all over town. Uh, people have generally signs at the end of their driveways and stuff thanking us as we're going in and out of the fire area and stuff. We park the truck somewhere to get fuel or whatever, you know, and, and people would just, you know, see that it said New Hampshire on the side of the truck. They'd just walk up and, you know, start thanking us and just very appreciative of our time out there. How does it make you feel? Oh, it makes you feel great. You know, absolutely. You've got these people that are, that are thanking you constantly for, for doing what you just normally do. David Culgren is a forest fire patrolman for the state of New Hampshire. He recently served as an engine boss for a New Hampshire engine in California at the Mendocino Complex Fire. David, thank you so much for your time, and, and thanks for representing New England out there in California. We really appreciate it. Uh, no worries. Glad to do it. Firefighters like David Culgren have a certain mystique to them. You can imagine them literally jumping into the middle of a raging forest fire. But other jobs are a bit, well, less glamorous, if no less important. Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill found a few men whose job is hidden away from view, but they keep the traffic moving on both roads and rivers. They're bridge tenders who operate those ancient drawbridges and swing bridges that make our coastal communities unique. Here's the story. When you drive over the Grand Avenue Swing Bridge in New Haven, look up and you'll see a house. Inside that house is a bridge tender, someone like Maurice Little, who is waiting patiently. Some people don't want to do it because it's, it's, it's like a boring job because you're just sitting there all day waiting on a radio call. Boats call when they want to pass, making sure those bridges are open when needed. It's a lot of waiting. 
my wife, she knows. She said, oh, your job is boring. No, it's not boring. I'm used to it. I, I enjoy my job. Between radio calls, Little says he passes the time with a book or on his computer. His colleague Mike Dorsey says even though the job can be slow sometimes, bridge tenders perform a vital service. Somebody has to be on these bridges at all times because the Coast Guard might need to come through. If there's an emergency on the river. And there are commercial necessity too. Oyster fishermen who travel to Quinnipiac need those bridges open to farm in Long Island Sound. And then there are everyday boats filled with summer hobbyists looking to pass time out on the ocean. I told Dorsey I wanted to go up into that curious house on the Grand Avenue swing bridge. He opens the gate and we climb a metal staircase buffeted by winds. As we walk, cars and buses breeze by underneath. The whole bridge shakes. People don't usually like look up here. They just, you know, ride right, right through. Not even knowing that we're up here. It's crazy. Inside the house is a giant control panel with numbered switches like one that turns traffic lights red. Another button drops a safety gate to block walkers and cars, and there are buttons to actually rotate the bridge. Grand Avenue became a swing bridge in 1896, so the whole process is not automated. Instead, it relies on the eye. Bridge tender Maurice Little remembers the first time his eyeballs were in charge. It was scary, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started over here on Grand Avenue. You got to be able to line the streets and the lines up. After you watch and say, okay, I know I need to let the button go once, once the angle of the bridge hits right here, and then everything kind of lines itself up. But after that, it's, it's, it's a piece of cake. Mike Dorsey asks if I want to see one more bridge. It's on Ferry Street, a 1940s drawbridge just a few hundred feet south. We make a quick scoot down the Quinnipiac, and minutes later, Dorsey introduces me to another colleague. Johnson! Bridge tender Mike Johnson. Johnson says tending to bridges can sometimes be slow, but it can also be peaceful, attuning him to nature. In the winter, you get to see the sun set over near the uh, cement tanks, and then in the summer, you get to see it set over New Haven, over the downtown area. For the several hours I was out on the river, I only saw one call an oysterman who was headed out to the sound and needed to pass underneath the Ferry Street Bridge. But Johnson says the slow days are okay. I'm not stressed out every day, going home stressed out, and this definitely takes that edge off, which is, these days, it's something to be said about. As I left, Johnson headed back up to his tower, anticipating the next radio call. Until then, he'll watch the horizon, and he'll wait. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. After nearly five decades on the endangered species list, the North Atlantic right whale is closer to extinction than it's been in decades. With just 450 left on Earth, some experts predict the species might be gone as soon as 2040. Now, we've told you stories about what's killing the whales, ship strikes and entanglements with fishing gear, and how that's changing fishing in the region, but far less attention has been paid to what some biologists say is the whale's real problem, low birth rates. Reporter Miriam Wasser has our story. To hear Charles Stormy Mayo talk about right whales is to hear a man on a mission. A mission to understand one of the ocean's most powerful and bizarre mammals. Since 1984, when Mayo spotted his first right whale in Cape Cod Bay, he's been obsessed with them. They are odd looking. They don't actually look at all like a whale. When you first see them, you, you won't know what you're looking at. Sitting on a rickety wooden chair in his Provincetown living room, 
Mayo says they sort of look like barnacle-covered rocks. They have giant mouths, and, and then they have immense and very lovely sculpted tails. All ends of them physically is, is, is interesting, but I think more important is the aura they create, which is of an animal that's rife with mystery. These days, the big right whale mystery is whether the species will survive. As the director of the Right Whale Ecology Program at the Center for Coastal Studies, few people are as well-versed as Mayo in right whales. And he's watched over the last year or so as at least 17 whales have died after colliding with ships or getting tangled in fishing lines. The trajectory of the population from the latest data is, is pointing towards zero. But Mayo and other right whale experts say the high mortality rate might not even be the whale's biggest problem. The problem is reproduction. They're not having calves. Heather Pettis is a right whale researcher at the New England Aquarium. We've seen variable reproduction over the years, but nothing like what we've seen this year. Right whales can calve every three to four years. And Pettis says that of the 70 or so that could have done so this year, zero did. That's right, zero. At its most basic level, population comes down to arithmetic. Births minus deaths. Here's Mayo again. We are looking at extinction. If a species doesn't reproduce, eventually it's gone. So the business of, of, of low calving is as horrific an issue as the mortality. There are likely many reasons for the declining birth rates, but at the center of the puzzle are two factors, nutrition and stress. To understand the first part, I meet with researcher Dan Pendleton at the New England Aquarium. His specialty is copepods, the rice grain-sized zooplankton eaten by right whales. Gosh, they look a little bit like a tiny shrimp with a, a bulbous body that holds an oil sac, and that's that's the reason that um, they're targeted as prey, it's because they're, they're oily and they're fatty. Copepods can't really swim and instead rely on ocean currents to move them around. And climate change is changing the way water moves. We think that changes in temperature and circulation have essentially shifted the, the areas where copepods are. And where the copepods go, so go the whales. Climate change might also be affecting the size and development of the copepods. Here's Pettis again. There's some thought that shifts in the timing of copepod reproduction and perhaps disruption of their cycle, that's impacting their nutritive quality. For the whales, it'd be like eating one-third of a grain of rice instead of a whole grain. And like all animals, female right whales need to have a certain amount of fat stored up to reproduce. And so if these females are energetically stressed because they're traveling farther to find food and their food resource is not high quality, they're not going to build that necessary energetic reserve to get pregnant and carry an offspring to term. In other words, as the ocean warms, the whales follow their prey into new areas. This trip consumes more energy and also increases another risk, entanglements. The whales are now showing up in areas that have more fishing activity than their old feeding grounds. And whales that get caught up in fishing gear face all sorts of health problems. We see fairly gruesome injuries on some of these whales carrying gear so that when that rope is remaining on the whale attached or embedded in the skin or rubbing against various parts of the body, we can see open wounds that persist for quite a long time. Entangled whales also struggle to swim and feed properly. I think it would be almost like attaching a parachute to your back and now try to swim with that attached to you. And that's that added drag that these whales are experiencing. 
Entanglements are also incredibly stressful events. And stress, according to the experts, is the second factor in the low birth rate hypothesis. Think about your own life for a moment. Stress impacts your mental and physical health. Too much of it can change your sleep pattern, make your skin break out, and if you're female, make getting pregnant difficult. Right whales live with a near-constant source of stress. Scientists call it insonification, or acoustic smog. Basically, humans have made the ocean a very noisy place. Check out what a large ship sounds like underwater, at two miles away. The sound comes from an archive at the University of Rhode Island. Here's what a wind turbine sounds like underwater. Obnoxious, right? In 2011, researchers published a paper showing for the first time that ocean insonification is directly correlated to higher stress levels in right whales. Now, of course, ocean noise affects a lot of marine life. But for a species already struggling to reproduce like right whales, the added stress from insonification is just one more factor working against them. So what to do about all of this? Stormy Mayo says one clue might lie in the southern hemisphere right whales. That population is much larger, healthier, and reproducing at a more sustainable rate. It's also more isolated from human activity. Do we have the same insonification issues? We don't. Do we have the DNA bottleneck problems? We don't. Do we have entanglement and, and ship strike? We don't. Human activity nearly wiped out the North Atlantic right whale once before. While there's not much we can do about their shifting food source, Experts say that at least some of the other problems can at least theoretically be mitigated by regulation. Regulation could help replicate, or at least get closer, to the Southern Hemisphere environment. Whether we can do anything before it's too late? Well, that's the big question. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. The plight of whales, and also the sounds they use to communicate, are the inspirations for a new orchestral piece that premiered at Boston's Hatch Shell in August. As WBUR's Maria Garcia reports, this piece illustrates the connection between humans and these magnificent ocean mammals. When the Boston Landmarks Orchestra's music director, Christopher Wilkins, first heard the sound of whales, he couldn't help but think of humans. He says his reaction was much like the reaction of the early scientists who studied humpbacks. When I first heard the recorded sound of a humpback, I couldn't believe my ears. It was as if human beings and whales shared an aesthetic sensibility, that their music making had heroic phrases and impressive riffs and trills and the, the language of music. That's what the Landmarks Orchestra is trying to show with this new piece, that whales and humans both rely on language and have a shared existence. Research shows us these animals exhibit behavior that suggests they're self-aware and have the ability to feel and express emotions. For many of these mammals, their feeding, migration, and mating habits all depend on sound. Whales, for example, seem to show off their gifts as artists, particularly in the mating, the process of selecting a mate that seems to be an important thing, that females will choose a male who's exceptionally gifted, you know, a virtuoso singer. It's a music that's now in danger. Some whales used to be able to communicate across the expanse of an ocean, 
but cruise ships and container ships have interfered with their calls and endangered their lives. It's a conflict composer Stella Sung reflects in the piece. And they also have sort of like traffic signals, uh, you know, ways of communicating um, just underwater. And so when those patterns and those signals get interrupted, um, then, you know, then the traffic flow also gets interrupted, so to speak. The performance is meant to move you, but also unsettle you. And the story of some of these whales is alarming. Sung worked with the New England Aquarium and scientists at Cornell to incorporate whale sounds into the piece, like those of the North Atlantic right whale. Scientists think there might be only about 450 left, and the population isn't growing. Despite more than 70 years of protection efforts, these whales are still extremely endangered, risking entanglement in fishing gear or ship collisions. Here's Wilkins again. The message takes on emotional resonance and even some sense of, of spirituality of, of, you know, what is the essence of life here? And these animals uh, require much the same things that we do. The piece ends with a crescendo, a swelling of string instruments, whale calls, and ship horns, meant to convey a way forward, a way to coexist. It reminds us that there is time to heed the sounds of these ocean beasts, but it's an urgent call. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Maria Garcia. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer of Next is Katie Tolarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia, and we had help this week from James Baumgartner. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com, and thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.